Thank you for downloading this podcast from BJOG. Welcome to this podcast on BJOG's latest themed issue, obesity and women's health. I'm Louisa Waite from the BJOG Editorial Office, and I'm joined by two of our scientific editors who worked on the issue. Dr. Emma Grosby, Senior Lecturer and Honorary Consultant in Gynecological Oncology at the University of Manchester, and Dr. Erica Berggren, Maternal Fetal Medicine Specialist at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. So we've received a large number of submissions for this issue, and the papers that you have selected cover various aspects of the impact of obesity on women's health. In your editorial, you describe the problem as an epidemic, which is now affecting the whole world. Is this why the topic of obesity was chosen as this year's themed issue for BJOG? Yes. I mean, obviously, obesity is a really important and growing problem of global proportions. And not only does it play a role in the etiology of certain diseases that affect women's health, for example, gestational diabetes, PCOS and endometrial cancer, but it also impacts on treatment options and the likely success of these IVF and surgery for benign gynecological diseases being two examples of this. So we chose this theme really to stimulate discussion about the impact of obesity on women's health and really to try and help us to search for answers to these problems. We do have a number of papers in the issue focusing on how to influence women to make healthy life choices during or just after pregnancy. Erica, are there any main messages that can be taken from these studies? Sure. I believe that some of the main messages are really that highlights our ability as both clinicians and researchers to really capitalize on women's motivation to improve their health during pregnancy for their future health and for their children. We have studies that have investigated interventions to mitigate excessive weight gain in pregnancy. We included studies that look at the impact of postpartum care and whether or not routine weighing, for example, during pregnancy is actually going to, number one, control weight gain, and number two, impact those outcomes. There's been a substantial research effort to actually change behavior through diet and lifestyle. The main messages, unfortunately, are that we're not that great at doing this yet. We've included research from two substantial trials, both the upbeat and limit trials, with detailed interventions to limit weight gain in pregnancy. And although we did have modest alterations, we unfortunately haven't reduced the incidence of adverse pregnancy outcomes, of gestational diabetes, or of large for gestational age infants. Instead, I believe that one of the main messages is that we need to point to preconception care And one of the ways that we can do that is through immediate postpartum care. Certainly in the United States where I work, this has many challenges, and I believe the same is true in the UK and probably worldwide. So the main messages that I believe, especially for the studies that relate to making healthy life choices, are that we have a lot of work to do, but the motivation of women and the motivation of clinicians and researchers at least has us on the right track. So these papers all highlight pregnancy as being a time to inform women to make positive behaviour changes to encourage them to lead a healthier lives. Absolutely. Emma, in your commentary, you point out that endometrial cancer is the most common gynaecological cancer affecting women in most European countries and North America. 
and you suggest that the increase in obesity levels is responsible for the increasing incidence of endometrial cancer. The issue includes two papers on endometrial cancer. What effect do you hope these papers will have on clinical practice? Um, well, it is really clear that endometrial cancer is more common in obese women, but I think that there is very little public awareness about this. Women do not realize that obesity is a risk factor for this disease, and I think that primary care physicians aren't aware of it either. Um, current NICE guidance recommends specialist referral for suspected cancer or women with postmenopausal bleeding over the age of 55, and it doesn't consider the importance of risk factors, which I think is a major omission. I really think we should be tailoring recommendations for specialist referral to individual patients and to consider referral for investigations. Those premenopausal and perimenopausal women who have persistent intermenstrual or heavy menstrual bleeding, who are at high risk by virtue of obesity and insulin resistance and so on. Erica, are there any papers in the issue that you think will have a big impact on the future of research and practice? Certainly. One paper that I believe should have a substantial impact is authored by Dr. Rogozinska um, and several other co-authors calling for the development of composite outcomes for individual patient data, or IPD, which is data analysis to rigorously and consistently evaluate the effects of diet or lifestyle in pregnancy. BJAG presents a call to action of sorts for transparency in research for both exposures and outcomes. It's difficult in today's research world to link data together and to really have a solid meta-analysis to rigorously assess whether or not what we're intervening and doing in pregnancy has the ability to alter outcomes. I think BJAG is at the forefront of this, also with the Crown Initiative, to enable researchers to speak the same language and attack these significant patient problems with the same goals and outcomes in mind. As you mentioned, as the paper mentions, this was why BDRUG established the Crown Initiative, um, and the Crown website does give more information on developing minimum core outcome sets. As well as calling for composite outcomes, in this issue we've also published two commentaries that also call for more research into the effects of bariatric surgery on pregnancy. Is there any other new research you would like to see carried out on the topic of obesity and women's health? Um, I would really like to see this strong link between obesity and endometrial cancer being exploited to look at ways of preventing endometrial cancer. So we need to think about targeted prevention strategies for women who are greatly at risk of endometrial cancer. Um, so we need to work out exactly who the at-risk population are. This will include things like age, BMI, but might also include serological biomarkers of insulin resistance, for example, um, and test new interventions designed to reduce endometrial cancer risk. Um, and these might be things like progesterone-only contraceptives, Mirena coil, weight loss, and so on. These prevention studies are actually really difficult to do. They are expensive and time-consuming, and they require many hundreds, if not thousands, of women to be compliant with an intervention and to be followed up for many years, particularly if you use cancer as the endpoint. Um, and this really isn't feasible without some sort of evidence of efficacy. So we need to think about doing studies that are powered to show a difference in surrogate endpoints, for example, the precancerous condition, atypical hyperplasia, or even how fast the endometrium is proliferating. Um, but really, 
my message would be that just because these are difficult studies to do doesn't mean we shouldn't be considering them. Erica, do you agree, or is there any other research you would like to see in the area? Sure. My approach is more from the obstetric and specifically high-risk pregnancy perspective, but I agree with Emma precisely that these studies are hard to do. I've already highlighted some of the limitations of our current research, and I believe we need to tackle that. We need to identify where the questions were not asking and therefore not answering. Although we have intervened in many pregnancies and spent millions of dollars on research, we still have not changed diet and lifestyle in pregnancy. For us, we look at surrogate outcomes such as gestational weight gain and diabetes diagnoses and a large for gestational age infant. We also need to consider years down the road how our excessive weight gain for infants in pregnancy is affecting long-term cardiovascular risk or obesity risk and thus endometrial cancer. It's difficult to look that far ahead, but I agree with Emma that that should not stop us from trying to do so. One specific approach in pregnancy that I believe may be key is to look more closely not just at maternal weight, weight gain, and BMI, but to look at maternal body composition changes. We already know that when women gain excessive weight in pregnancy, they're not gaining additional lean or healthy mass. They're gaining additional fat mass. That fat mass is not metabolically active, and women who gain excessive fat mass are far less likely to lose it after pregnancy, thus perpetuating the obesity crisis around the world. And I'm not sure that anybody at this point is immune to that, uh, regardless of your geographic location, cultural background. So I would agree with Emma that we need to look both at what we're doing, highlight the limitations of our current research, and despite that it's difficult to do better research, that's exactly what we need to work on. Great. I think another aspect of obesity um, that's highlighted in the issue is the cost on healthcare resources. The issue includes a commentary from the British Medical Association that focuses on the financial cost of obesity, and the author argues that more regulation is needed from the UK government to reduce obesity. For example, Denmark introduced a tax on fat and Mexico has introduced a tax on sugar, which is something British campaigners are keen to introduce and a sugar tax has been discussed quite a lot in the media recently. Do you think the papers in this issue support the need for governments to intervene to reduce obesity? For me, this is a difficult question. I understand the logic behind such a proposal. As the commentary highlights, the burden of obesity on public resources includes the more obvious health services costs, but also includes social services costs of caring for individuals with obesity-related illnesses. The way such costs extend to government, taxpayers, or others in different countries may vary, but no one would argue that the costs impact far beyond the individual. Uh, I believe the commentary said that in the UK, obesity consequences cost the NHS over five billion pounds a year, an incredibly large and growing sum. And at least for a publicly funded healthcare system, one could argue that the government has an absolute right to step in. I think I would urge countries taking on this challenge to tread carefully. I believe we need to be prepared to collect data, rigorously assess before and after outcome measures, 
that one would hopefully anticipate to be directly impacted by a government policy. I admit that my bias may come from my U.S. perspective, where government control or tax of food or sugary drink would absolutely be challenged, and it counters what I suspect is an enormous financial gain for advertisers of the exact products we'd want to limit. I don't, however, disagree that it's a bad idea. I just think we need to think very carefully about how we would implement that and assess the outcomes. Uh, yes, I think that a lot of the sugar and fat in processed food is hidden, and consumers are often not aware of the amounts that they're actually eating. If there were a tax on products that exceeded a healthy threshold, this might help industry to identify healthier alternatives to make food taste as good. In a similar way, if exercise was promoted in schools more and daily activity became more normal for children growing up in today's society, this would help them to make healthier choices as adolescents and young adults with a beneficial legacy of lifestyle choice lasting into adulthood. As we've discussed, obesity is clearly a complex issue, but it's not a new problem. We published a B-Drug Since 1902 article that highlights that B-Drug has been publishing research on the topic for a long time, including a similar themed issue 10 years ago. Do you think research around obesity has developed in the last 10 years? And can we expect another themed issue on obesity in 10 years' time? Or do you think we will have solved the problem by then? <laughs> it's, it's a lovely thought, um, and it would be fantastic if we had got on top of this issue, but I really think that that's unlikely. Um, in fact, obesity rates are continuing to climb um, and to affect more and more countries around the world. Um, so I think, unfortunately, uh, we will be needing that themed issue in 10 years' time. I would agree. I would love to be more optimistic and say that we are getting to the bottom of this problem, so to speak. I don't think we're there yet, and I agree with Emma. However, I would at least be optimistic and say that we're making progress in research. I think that an issue such as this BJAG obesity-themed issue has really highlighted the current research, the current understanding, and really given this idea of where to go from here. Highlighting the limitations of our own research and thinking critically about it is the way to move forward. So I will at the very least be optimistic that we're heading in the right direction and thinking, even if we haven't made any impact on the actual obesity rates yet. There is clearly lots more that needs to be done to reduce the impact of obesity. But this themed issue has addressed a lot of important research questions, and hopefully we will see the results of some of these calls to action in future issues of BJOG. Thank you for joining me for this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from BJOG. We have been reporting the best research in women's health since 1902. We are keen to hear your views. Tweet us at BJOG Tweets. You can find more podcasts at www.bjog.org.